you have your Bibles, you can grab them quickly and flip to Nehemiah chapter one. We're going to read the whole chapter. It's 11 verses. So I thought we'll read the whole chapter to hopefully give us an outline of where the Lord wants to take us today. You guys okay with that? Amen. Here we go. Starting in verse one, it says the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. How many of you know the month of Chislev? I do not either. I had to look it up. Amen. It's the month of November, okay? I don't know why they just didn't say the month of November, but they said Chislev, so we'll go with that. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with a certain men, with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. I said to the, to the Lord, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you have commanded through your servant Moses. Remember your words that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you amongst the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success. How many of you want the Lord's success in your life? And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Father, we thank you for your word and I just pray right now that all of our hearts would be open to what it is you want to tell us today. Lord, help me to articulate this word in a way that all of us can understand it so that it conforms us and transforms us into your image and into your likeness, Jesus. Lord, I pray I would decrease and your spirit would increase so that your anointing goes forth. I pray that right now. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can simply know you better today, Lord. Father, we love you. We give you glory. We give you honor. And it's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Listen, before you're seated, find two people, give them a high five and say, rebuild your life. Tell them, rebuild your life. Rebuild your life. So what's up, CWC? How y'all doing today? Are you good? Amen. Well, hey, listen, if there's nothing else that you take away from today, take this away. I'm a man of my word. Amen. It's not as as though some of you might think that I've seen the light because I have a Penn State shirt on, okay? No, I'm honoring a bet that I I made. uh, Ohio State won, but they didn't cover the points. And so here I am in a Penn State hoodie. And and through this whole experience, right? Like I, I didn't learn the lesson not to bet. 
I learned the lesson not to bet a certain person. You know what I mean? Like that's the only lesson I learned through this whole thing. Like there's one person I'm no longer betting because every time I bet him, he wins. It's Robert Amy. And I tell you, I, I tried to explain to him this before church. I said, you know, Jesus called us to be like him. We're supposed to be the good shepherd. You're like the bad shepherd. You lead me into temptation. Okay, you're delivering me over to evil. Like, no, but that's why I'm wearing the Penn State hoodie. And it worked out you know, pretty well for me actually because of the weather. And so there's not a lot of people that are gonna see it today. Amen. Like, <laughs> amen. No, but it's so good to see everybody. I kind of like this though. I got like a little hand rest for my, for my hands, but. So listen, we're gonna finish up this scene that we're currently in that we've titled Exiled, right? Touch your neighbor, say, don't get exiled. Tell them, don't get exiled. We're gonna wrap this thing up and we actually only have one more scene, guys, to end this year with, man. And we've made it through the entire series, the saga of salvation for the entire year, pointing out how all of this points to one person and one name. And he has the name that is above every name and that name is Jesus, amen. That is the point of this life. This is the goal of this life, to pursue him and become more like him and become more in love with him every single day. And so this entire series, the saga of salvation, has been pointing simply to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so today, though, we're going to wrap up our scene, Exiled, with a, an episode titled, Rebuild Your Life. Come on, all together. Say, Rebuild Your Life. Yeah. And look, so far, what we've learned in this scene titled Exiled is we've seen how the people of God have lived a life against God, contrary to the word of God, contrary to the, to the will of God. They've, they've lived against God because they've started to worship foreign gods. They became distracted by the people, places, and things about their, their culture. They were, they were being drawn away from God, and so they started to worship all these foreign gods. They, they lived the life this way, and because this is how they, they lived their life, God in his great grace, his great wisdom, his great mercy, right? He disciplined them by sending them into exile. How many of you understand? We talked about this last week. Man, God's discipline is his love towards you. Amen. It's God's discipline that he shows you his love towards you that calls you a son or a daughter is disciplined. And so this is what God is doing with the people of Israel. He's, he's essentially removing them from their promise because remember, their promise was a promised land. And because they are exiled out of the land, they're being removed from their promise. Because like we talked about last week, the reason he removed them is because God is more concerned with your soul than he is your happiness. Okay. Not that God isn't concerned with your happiness. I'm not saying that, but he's more concerned with the state of your soul, where you're heading. See, see the depths of his understanding, no man can fathom. No man can fathom that. And what God understands that we may not understand is that we are better to live for him in the end, even though maybe sin is pleasurable for a season, right? But sin leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That's just what it is. And so when God sees his people living in sin, right, he warns them by disciplining them and sending them on an exile so that we turn and live for him. See, scripture says that he's the God of the living, not the dead. And because sin leads to death, right? God is always trying to, to get our attention to make sure we stop sinning and start living for him, amen. Amen. See, God desires to bring us life and life more abundantly, right? He desires to spend eternity with you and with me. This is what his desire is. And so when he sees us living in a way that's against him, he, he disciplines us with one hope, 
It's one hope that is on his heart and on his mind. That we would turn from our sin, repent, and begin to follow him. Begin to obey him. That's the whole point of discipline, church. It all points back to, to him. And this is where the Israelites are at this point in time in their history, in their life. Right? This is they are, man. man. They've sinned against God. And so God now has sent them into an exile. And there was two exiles, two different ones. The Assyrian exile, which was the Assyrian captivity where 30 some thousand Jews got removed from their land and, and the rest of them got besieged by the Assyrians. And then the second one we talked about last week, which was the Babylonian exile. The people were taken from their land for 70 years. It lasted for 70 years. And what we learned last week through all of these different stories is how God never leaves us nor forsakes us. God never leaves us nor forsakes us, even if it's our decisions that lead us away from him. God is so good that he remains faithful to us. It's incredible. See, it isn't as if God, you know, sent them on an exile and then said, ah, fend for yourself. Just, just fend for yourself, right? See, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. It's funny because, you know, when I was thinking about God's faithfulness and, and how, he, how he treats us, how good he is to us, I started to think about when, you know, I get to, to minister to people and people will come to me and they'll ask me for help for certain things. And, and I'll tell them different advice, you know, to, to change up the way they're living in order to get a different result. But the people will continue to do the same thing they've always done. And then I run into them years later, right? And they're still struggling with the same struggle that they struggled with before. And I'm gonna be really honest. At very first, my first thought is, yeah, you, you made your bed. Now you're gonna lie in the bed. My, my initial reaction is, I, I told you so. I, I mean, I told you this was going to happen. See, that's my very first thought. You know why? Because my flesh enjoys to be right. Even if being right is bad, my flesh will enjoy that. My flesh loves saying, I told you so. But see, God's ways are higher, amen, than our ways. His thoughts are completely higher than our thoughts. And, and God did not tell his people, hey, I told you so. You, you, you've made your bed, now you can lie in it. I'm just gonna leave you. No, 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 God never leaves us nor forsakes us. And this is what we see in the life of the Israelites. He didn't say, no, 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 you go and, and deal with it. No, no, the moment they called on his name, he intervened for them and saved them. Amen. Amen. It's an incredible thing that this is how God treats his, his, his people. Even when it's our choices to, to, to walk away from him and do things against him, God is so awesome that he continues to love on us and protect us. And what we've seen last week in the Babylonian exile is that this is what the people of God have been doing. They've been living against God, doing all these things against the, the commandments and the will of God. And why they're in exile, we ran into three young men in the exile named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Three men. And they're on the exile like everyone else, but, but because God never leaves us nor forsakes us, they're in trouble. They're getting ready to be thrown into a fiery furnace and God rescues them, redeems them, and delivers them. Matter of fact, we've seen how in scripture, he walked with them in the fire. He didn't do it from afar. See, he sticks closer to us than a brother. And so Jesus got right into the fire with them to protect them. And then yet on another occasion, we ran into a man named Daniel. Now, we didn't get to go through this story, but there's a, a similar story. Daniel runs into trouble as well, but it wasn't the fiery furnace. It was the lion's den. How many know Daniel in the lion's den? 
You learned that as a kid, right? How, how God shut the mouth of the lion. See, God never leaves them nor forsakes them. He's always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And God delivers him again. And so what we see is, is that after 70 years there in exile, removed from their promise, finally, finally, the people catch a revelation and they're like, man, we need to repent. We need to repent and return to God. And that's what they do. And they ask God to send them back to Jerusalem, essentially asking God, give us back our promises that we have now forfeited based off of our mistakes. We have, we've forfeited them, but God, give us, give us them back is what they're, they're basically saying. And because God is always good, do you know he's always good? He's never not good. He can't be anything but good. And because he's always good, he makes a way when there seemed to be zero way. And it's crazy how he... He makes the way for them to return back home, back to their, their promise. See, see if, if you think about the way God delivered his people, you know, you would go back to the Egyptian exile, right? You'd go back to there and see how he split the sea so they could walk right through it, how he did all these different plagues, the majesty and the, and the miraculous powers of God, the signs and wonders that, that followed him through the, through the desert and, and led his people out of captivity. You would think maybe that's the way he's going to do it again, but he, he doesn't, he does it differently. He raises up another kingdom, the Persian kingdom. And the Persians, right, they come and lay siege to the Babylonians. So God raises up this other kingdom in order to make a way for his people to return to their promise. All because the people returned and repented of their sin. Showing us this, that as long as we repent, God is right there with us. And what we see in Ezra chapter one, now we're not gonna get to read this. So Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, are historical books. They're two historical books in the Bible. And back in the day, Ezra and Nehemiah both were one book. And after the canonization, they separated them into two books, okay? But in Ezra chapter one, what we find is uh, Cyrus, the Persian king, he makes this decree that he's gonna rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. He's gonna rebuild it. So he, he writes this decree and he sends back 50,000 Jews in the first wave. He releases 50,000 at one, one instant. And see, their, their mandate was to go back and rebuild the temple of Jerusalem. But when they get to Jerusalem, what they find is a bunch of foreigners squatting in the land. And, and they didn't care about the land, right? They, they, they didn't care how they treated the land. They, they just, they would, they would trash it, they would beat it, they would destroy it, everything in it. They, they didn't care. And, and so the foreigners are watching the Jews come back home and they're not happy about this. And so they begin to oppress the Jewish people. They begin to give resistance to the Jewish people. And what happens is, is the, is the people of God forget God once again. They, they forget. The only thing they got built in that first wave was the, the foundation of the temple. And then for two decades, 20 more years, the work of God stops. For 20 more years, once again, they forget about who God is and, and they become distracted by the people and the things in their culture. And so what does God do, right? God, God in his goodness, he raises up two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets to go and call the people out on their sin. 
Right? See, God wanted his temple to be rebuilt so that his people could live for him and worship him and read his word with, with each other. This is what he wanted. But see, the enemy is come to steal, kill, and destroy all the plans of God. This is what he, what he does. And so the enemy sends these people to oppress God's people and distract them from what God had planned for them. And Haggai and Zechariah's job was to come and refocus them. How would you like that job? Amen. How would you like to refocus the people? This, is, this was their job. And he does so by reminding them of the reason that God saved them. You know, and I can relate to this so often, man. There's so many times in my life where God has had to refocus me by reminding me of the reason he saved me. So many, on so many different occasions. Why? Because I've become distracted by people and things in this life. Listen, the enemy has one goal. That's to distract you from the goal. And the goal is very simple. I said at the very beginning of service, the goal is so simple. It's to live for Jesus. It's to live a life worthy of the call that we have in Christ Jesus. The, the, the goal is to live according to his will and his way. But the reality is this life has a way of distracting us with people and things. Life will offer us people that will, will try to, to lead us away from Jesus instead of towards Jesus. We run into these people all the time. And, and here's the thing. These people may even act like they're for you. They may even act like they're, they're, they're all about your success. So openly they're praising you, but secretly they're rooting against you and openly they're talking divisions amongst you. Listen to me, here, here is the, the truth. If people are talking division within, within the church or within you or, or around you, you know that those people aren't for you. Because scripture says that we are to, to fight for the bond of unity through the bond of peace, Amen. Amen. And so this is what we see happening, though, in the Israelites, man. There's people there to distract them and lead them away from Jesus. And it's so important for us to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus above all else. Because life tries to distract us with people. But it also tries to distract us with things. It tries to distract us with things. So often people make life about things, don't they? How nice of a car you have, how nice of a house you have, how nice of clothes you have. And here's the thing about nice things are not bad things, okay? If anyone knows me, I, I like nice things, amen. I see some of you checking out my nice skinny jeans every week and wishing you had them, okay? So, so it's okay, amen, amen. But having nice things is, is not a bad thing. See, when the nice things become a bad thing is when everything becomes about the nice things. When everything we do is, is in the pursuit of having nice things and we'll do whatever it takes to get what the nice things are, what we've, uh, we've declared nice things. This is when nice things become a bad thing, when they distract us from the goal, when we're no longer pursuing Jesus because we're pursuing wealth and riches and things. That's when it becomes a bad thing. And in the book of Ezra, what we find is this is how the people of God are living. They're distracted by the people who allowed them to lead them away from Christ. They're distracted by the things and so they begin to build their own houses. They forget about the work of God and they build their own house. And so Haggai and Zechariah come and say, hey, you've got to refocus. You've got to continue to, to, to build and rebuild the house of God. And finally, after two decades of this, they, they finally give in. They repent and return to the work of God. But here's what you find. Is after they rebuild the temple, Okay, after they rebuild the temple, the enemies are still raiding them. The enemy is still pillaging them, 
because the walls are still destroyed in the city. And see, the walls of the city is what protected the city. It was different back then than it is now. Right? The walls of the city is what protected the city. Without walls, the city was ripe for the pickings. The enemy would come in and raid them and pillage them at any time. It was, it was ripe for the pickings for those who were trying to do harm and seek their own gain. And so they had to get these, these walls built. God had to get the, the, the walls built to protect his people and to protect the temple. And so what does God do? God calls a man named Nehemiah. He calls Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. And the story of, of Nehemiah is, is such a great representation and an illustration of, of how we need to make sure the walls in our lives are built up. That the walls that have been destroyed, that we rebuild these walls. Because if our walls are down, our defenses are down. And if the, the defenses are down, the enemy can infiltrate us and lie to us and pillage us and, and lie to us and we can, we can follow into this distraction and this blinding things of the enemy. This is what he tries to do. So, so if our walls are down, our defenses are down. And here's the thing that I found out in life, that when we've been living in sin, we've been living a life against the commandments of God, we have destroyed our own walls. We've taken our own walls down. The enemy didn't even have to do it. We did it. And so that means we need to, to rebuild our walls. We need to be, rebuild the walls. Man, the walls cannot be down or the enemy will infiltrate and raid and pillage and, and take everything that God has desired to give us. If our walls are down, the enemy will wreak havoc on our lives. So we've got to rebuild our walls. We got to rebuild the walls around our family. We got to rebuild the walls around our marriages. We, we got to rebuild the walls around our community. We got to rebuild the walls around our churches. This is, this is our job. Because the fact of the matter is this, listen to me. If we're not the ones rebuilding the walls, if the church isn't the one rebuilding the walls, no one else will. And this is exactly what I said before service started. John referenced it. Exactly what I said. Guys, it's important to be in church because while we are in church, we're trying to rebuild walls that people have destroyed before us. We're trying to rebuild them, reinforce them by coming together in the presence of God, seeking God with everything that is within us so that he can build us so that we can rebuild the walls that have been destroyed by the enemy. But see, the enemy wants to keep us distracted. He wants us not to, to understand we need to rebuild these walls. He wants to, because he's enjoying having his way in our families and in our schools and in our communities. He enjoys it. And in Nehemiah chapter one, it starts out showing us the importance of rebuilding the walls in our lives. Rebuilding the walls. And, and I hope really simply here is that by the end of today, man, we have a, an outline of the importance and the way that we rebuild the different walls in our lives. Amen. And I know that was a lot to say what I'm about to say, but we had to give a little context of what is taking place so that we know where the people of God are in this season in Nehemiah chapter one. And the very first thing that I found to be so appropriate in, in Nehemiah, the very first thing he does is he recognizes there is a problem. He recognizes there's a problem. In verse, verse four of Nehemiah one, I'm gonna read it again. It says, as soon as I heard these, these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. When's the last time that you've wept and mourned for the state of your community? 
When's the last time that you have sat and wept before God and bared your heart before God for the state that your community and the state that your city is in and your country is in? This is what Nehemiah is doing. He's weeping and mourning because of what is happening to the people. He says, I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He recognizes there is a problem. Listen, if we don't know there's a problem, we don't know that the problem needs fixed, right? It's pretty, pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And, and you know, I find this with a lot of people, saved and unsaved, by the way, alike. They, they don't even know there's a, there's a problem. And with those that are saved, this is typically what I find. They think that if they come to church every Sunday, if they come in and they hear a message on Sunday, if they, if they come in and they raise a hallelujah and their weapon is their melody, right? If they, if they, they do that and they shout a little louder and they sing a song on a Sunday and they, they hear the message on Sunday. As long as they come to church on Sunday, everything is good. There is no problem because I'm in church. And let me preface this. I love having you in church. Come back next week. Amen. But what the reality is, all kidding aside, church in and of itself isn't enough. It's not enough to rebuild your life. It's not enough to keep your walls reinforced around your life. Coming to church in and of itself just isn't enough. Coming and hearing a message once a week isn't enough. Singing a couple songs together and, and, and lifting our hands once a week isn't, isn't enough. You gotta have the, the daily bread. That's why it's so important to know the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Not give us this week. Oh, I went in Sunday, I got my weekly bread. I, I ate, I'm good. I, I got built up a little bit, I'm good. No, 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 give us this day. Not month, not week, but, but day. Give us this day our daily bread. This is how we rebuild the walls in our life. And here's why this is so important. Because man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the written word of God, the spoken word of God. Every single day we need to be fed with his word, in his word. And as far as worship goes, you know, scripture says we are to live a life of worship to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, that we are to, to, to live a life of sacrificial worship, laying down our life daily for Christ. And this is the way we begin to rebuild our lives and also the lives of those around us. And do you know what I find to be so true with non-believers? What I find to be with them? They don't realize that there's a problem at all. Like they, they, they don't even realize that, that they need a savior. They don't even realize that they need a savior because the enemy has distracted them and blinded them so much that they don't even realize this. They're distracted by the people and things of this, of this culture. Listen to me, when I finally recognized I had a problem, then I called on the savior. But it wasn't until after I seen that there was a problem with the way my, my life was headed. And so the unsaved, they need to know that there's a problem. They need to be told about the savior. And did you know that that's our job? That's your job. That's my job. To tell people about Jesus and the love. And the hope. that's the message that you and I carry. See, see, Nehemiah recognizes, first of all, there's a problem. There's a problem and he begins to mourn and weep. Man, we got to mourn and weep over the state of our community, over the state of our city, over the people that are getting beat up by the enemy and infiltrated and raided by him. We, we've got to mourn for them and fight for them. So we recognize there's a problem. Number two, we recognize our position. 
we got to recognize our position. See, Nehemiah says at the very end of this thing, he says, uh, I'm a cupbearer, right? So what he's trying to do, right? He's telling God, God, give me favor with this man because I'm his cupbearer. Speaking to his position. See, Nehemiah was going to the king, right? To get stuff, to get money, to get wood, to go rebuild the walls. And he's saying, God, give me favor with him so that I can have it. And I do have a position. And just to give you a reference point of what his position would be as a cupbearer, it would be like the, the, the president's chief of staff, okay? He's like the Mick Mulvaney to King Artaxerxes, in case you know who that is. But anyway, you couldn't get to the king, you can't get to the president unless you go through the chief of staff. That's exactly what is, what is happening here. So, so in other words, Nehemiah has this great position, this great position. And something that, that I, I run into often with the believer they feel like they don't have the position in order to fix the problem. I see this all the time. And they can actually read the story of Nehemiah and see that he was a cupbearer and think, oh my gosh, you know, well, he had a position. That's why he helped the problem because he, he, he had the, the position, okay? A lot of people think that just because they're not a part of the five-fold ministry, right? Pastor, teacher, right? Evangelist, prophet, and apostle, because they don't, they don't think they're in what they call full-time ministry, that they don't have the position to help fix this problem. But here's what I felt like the Lord said that we all had to hear today. Here's what I felt like he said. Your position is a son and a daughter. You have a position in the kingdom. You don't need a title to minister to the problem. Amen. You don't have to have a title to minister to the problem. See, people are lost and you are found. Go get them. Tell them about Jesus. Recognize the problem, but then also recognize your position as a son and a daughter. You once were blind, but now you see. Now go and help those that are still blinded and lead them to Jesus, amen. You don't need a title when you have a position. Every one of us have given our lives to Christ, man, have the position of sonship and daughtership. I'm not even sure if daughtership is a word, but I'm gonna use it anyway. Each one of us that's given our lives to him need to take this very, very seriously, that we are sons and daughters. Recognize the problem that people are hurting. Recognize the problem that the enemy is beating them up and they need built up. They need the walls around their lives rebuilt. Recognize that. And then recognize the position that you've been given to help fix this problem. Amen. And the very last one that I want to talk about just really quickly here is this. Recognize who has the answers. Recognize that God has the answers. This is what Nehemiah does. You know, way too often I run into people who, who think they need to figure out every answer in their life. How their family's gonna get through whatever they're going through. How they're gonna come up with the money to, to fix whatever they need to fix. They're, they're always sitting, oh, well, me and my wife, we're gonna, we're gonna really get together tonight. We're gonna hone in on some, on some things and do pros and cons and, and try, to, try to troubleshoot this thing together to get through it. This is what I see all the time. But did you know as a believer, you don't have to rely on your own wisdom. You don't have to rely on your own strength. You don't have to rely on your own abilities. Matter of fact, it's a sin when we rely on our own abilities because we're supposed to trust fully in who God is. We get to rely fully on who God is. And, and Nehemiah shows us this when he goes directly into prayer after he hears the word, recognizes the problem, recognizes his position. Then he goes to God and God, he says, God, how do I fix this? What, what do I do to, to, to fix this? How, give me wisdom and favor, God, to to be able to fix this. He says, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome 
God. He goes directly into prayer. Do you know what I was reading? There's something that came to my, to my mind. How often we throw around the word awesome just so flippantly. Like, man, that pizza was awesome. Yeah, yeah. Like, man, that game last night was awesome. I seen Steph Curry hit this half quarter. It was awesome. Dude, it was so crazy. You should have seen it. You know, I had a friend one time, pastor friend. He used to say this to me all the time. He said, he said Keith, food is good. God is awesome. Sports are good, but only God is awesome. He's the only one that deserves that title. Did you not know, have you not heard that we serve an everlasting God, an awesome God? That even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those that rely on the Lord, those that wait upon the Lord, those that inquire of God, they'll renew their strength. They'll put them on wings like eagles. They'll, they'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not grow faint. They will soar above all the problems and distractions the enemy has for man. We got we to gotta rely on God. See, Nehemiah recognizes that he has to go to God for these answers to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. He, he goes there and the very first thing he does is he recognizes God's supremacy. Right off the bat in his prayer, he recognizes, oh God, Lord of heaven, great and awesome God, which by the way is what Jesus does in the, in the Lord's prayer. We need to know that prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you're awesome. Putting God above where he belongs and us below where we belong. And you know why it's so important to recognize our, our position in this thing? Because when we understand that we're beneath him and he's the one covering us and holding us, then we remain in a humble place. And God exalts the humble, but he resists the proud. And so when I sit there and think, oh God, I got this. What are we gonna do, right, for the church? What, what, what are we gonna do? I fell into this so many different times where I feel like I'm gonna come up with a solution instead of going to God for the answer. See, Nehemiah recognized this. And he goes and he recognizes God's supremacy right off the bat. And I love where he goes the next part of the prayer. I love this. Because it's as if Nehemiah begins to remind God of his promises. You are the God who keeps the covenants, right? You're on, you, you are always faithful, God. You are the faithful and steadfast God. Reminding God of his, his promise. How many of you know that God doesn't need to be reminded? God, is it like us that forget? See, young people forget too, Google, by the way. Young people forget. I forget all the time. Forget my wallet. Hey, babe, help me find my wallet. You've seen it anywhere. I'm always forgetting something. But God doesn't forget. So what's Nehemiah doing in the prayer? This is what I believe he's doing. He's not reminding God of God's promises. He's reminding himself of the God he serves. He's saying, God, I know that you are steadfast and you, and you hold your covenant and you hold your people. So I'm gonna speak these promises over my life. Did you know this? I read this stat the other day. I was looking up stats all week this week. I don't know why, but I was. But I found something. I found that it says that there's 3,000 promises in God's word. Now, I didn't check that, but it sounded pretty right. You can go check it if you want. Let me know. Count them. But it sounded really, really close. 3,000 promises. And did you know scripture says this, that they are all yes and amen through Christ Jesus? Every single promise. That every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ Jesus. So see, we need to, to be reminded of the awesomeness of God, amen, amen. We need to remind ourselves that, that God will fulfill everything that he's promised, that he is the great and awesome God and he delivers on every one of his, his promises. You know something else I read that I, th I thought was pretty cool? $5.2 billion worth of, of gift cards go unclaimed every year. 
B, with a B, billion, $5.2 billion worth of gift cards go unclaimed. And as I was reading that and I was thinking about this, I started to wonder. I wonder how many of the 3,000 promises go unclaimed in our lives every day. How many of the promises that God has written for you and give to you have went unclaimed because you never claimed them? You just let them see life and death is in the power of the tongue. God reacts to a sound. It's, it's a sound that calls forth the move of God. It's, it's a sound. God moves in sound. It's just the way it is. So why do I encourage you to sing? Why does scripture say, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord? Because God reacts to the sound of his people. How many of these promises are going unclaimed in our lives? Because we don't even know the promises. Because we're not in his word. We're not. We gotta be in his word so that we can know the promises, so that we can claim these promises over our lives. Did you know that scripture says that by his stripes you are healed? Did you know that? It doesn't say you might be healed, you could be healed. No, no, it says by his stripes, Jesus already purchased it. The promise has already been given. There's so many promises that you are more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That no weapon formed against you shall prosper, none. That the weapons of your warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. These are your promises, but yet we find ourselves walking through hard seasons, getting beat up by the enemy because we're not claiming these promises. We let $5.2 billion worth of gift cards a year. And I'll bet you we let over 2,000 promises a year go right by without claiming them over our lives. Did you know that scripture says that if we raise our kids in the ways of the Lord, they'll never depart. That's a promise. And we need to claim this. See, Nehemiah recognizes this is what he has to do in order to build the walls. He's gotta be praying. He's gotta be inquiring of God. Did you know there's so much that you and I can accomplish through prayer? There's so much that can be accomplished through prayer. Scripture says that the prayers of the righteous prevaileth much, that they are effective and they're powerful. It's one of the main and key ingredients to rebuilding walls in our lives and in the lives of our community. Listen, if you want to rebuild the walls around your marriage, pray for your spouse. Pray with your spouse if you want to rebuild the walls in your marriage. Well, the flames went out. Pray for the flame. Amen. Pray for it. Well, we can't get along. We'll pray that you would, you would get along. Amen. If you want the walls rebuilt around your marriage, you gotta, you gotta pray. You gotta pray. You gotta pray. If you want the walls rebuilt around our community, we've gotta pray for our community. We have to, to cry and, and mourn over what we see people going through, man. This is how we build walls in this community. You, you know, I love the work of Elm. Elm is such a great work in this community. It's, it's a defense. It's a wall that God has built up and people have, have pursued it. Helping young ladies to know that there's another way. You don't have to abort the child. You don't have to. We'll help you. We'll, we'll, we'll. This is a wall. Instead of us just saying, ah, it's no big deal. Let people make their own decisions, right? This is a wall that is built up. Moms and dads, hear me. Hear me. If you have someone that's far from God, anyone has a, a loved one far from God, man, claim. Claim over them the righteous year of the Lord. You speak it over them and claim them for Jesus. You guys heard my testimony a little bit last week. Do you know the only reason I even have a testimony? Because my mom wouldn't stop praying. Even when life looked really, really bad. Really bad. $300 a heroin a day is really bad. Really bad. 
but my mom never stopped praying. See, your prayers for your unsaved loved ones could be the only wall in between the enemy and them. The only thing keeping them alive is your prayers. And when we think like that, man, we're going to be pressing in to pray, to rebuild these, these walls. And look, there are multiple principles throughout Nehemiah, the book, but these are the three that I felt like the Lord wanted us to talk about today. Just these three. Recognize that there is a problem. Recognize that there are people hurting and they're getting beat up. Recognize your need for Jesus and the, and the need of those around you for Jesus. Recognize that. Recognize it. And cry for it. Pray and mourn over it. Recognize your position as a son and a daughter. That you have the position to fix the problem. You have it. Because God has given it to you. He's called you son. He's called you daughter. The spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Let me tell you something. When my kids come to me and tell me about a problem, I'll react to them before I will to anybody else. Do you know that God does the same thing for you? He does the same thing for you. Recognize there's a problem. Recognize your position. And then recognize who has the answers. Stop trying to figure it out on your own. Stop it. You don't have to go through life on your own. You don't have to. You don't have to, so why do it? Stop trying to rely on your own strengths, your own abilities, your own wisdoms. Stop it. And go to God. Go to God for the answers and he will will give you the answers. Come on, stand to your feet. Nehemiah was called to build the wall. To rebuild the wall. Rebuild the walls around his city. Rebuild the walls around the marriages in the city. Rebuild the walls around his community. He was there to rebuild the walls. And today the Lord's trying to tell you, so are you. You're to rebuild the walls in your life and in the life of those around you. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, help us to build our life upon your love. Help us to take it to those around us. Let us show them, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom and revelation on how to rebuild our lives solely for you and wholeheartedly only for you, Jesus. I pray that right now in Jesus' mighty name, amen.